What's our business? What do we do? Us? That's easy. Oh. Bootleggers. Coal bootleggers. It's a coal to cash business. No middleman. Uh-huh. No union dues. It's how we make do. Mm. You got that, Clay? Mm. Bootlegging coal? On this episode, let's take another look at author Clay Gregor's intimidating, one-of-a-kind childhood through his writings, right here on Life's Learning Curve. Welcome back to Life's Learning Curve. Storytelling. Our own life stories, full of humor, some cringeworthy moments, and at times, a grander purpose. Did you ever wonder just how you became the person you are today? That's us. Storytelling. Welcome our host, the man with the hot pen, Paul Hart. Okay, hot pen. We return with more stories from the series I'm calling The Art of Being Clay. Why? Well, about a month ago, I received notice that my good friend, author, my mentor, Clay Gregor, he had left us. He departed from this world and overwhelmed. I felt I needed to share. This guy wrote so much and he was so prolific in what he wrote and the content that he wrote. He saw life a little bit differently. I like that. This time, growing up in Pennsylvania's coal country, Sebastian. Okay. Life's Learning Curve with Paul Hart. Episode, The Art of Being Clay. Coal bootleggers. Stand by. My father's advice to me in Shemokin, Pennsylvania, was, Butch, we're in the coal mines. Get a job, work hard for the foreman, he'll take care of you. Nobody's told, dare to do something. Get a state of mind that it's the right thing to do and have the courage to do it. That's what should be on every child's bedroom wall forever. Now, in the previous podcast episode, we followed Clay Gregor's life in Pennsylvania's coal country around the time of 1947. Born in 1940, he's seven years old. At this time, Clay found himself working in the family coal mine instead of attending school regularly. I wanted to attend school, and we'll talk about that. Now, his parents didn't willingly keep him from school. They just relied, and they needed his help in the family coal mine. However, a tragic accident involving Clay's stepbrother being struck and killed by a distracted driver led Clay to being blamed for this incident, straining his relationship with his father and his mother. Adding to Clay's hardships, his beloved dog, his sole companion was shot after sustaining an injury. The story picks up here today with Clay revealing the reason his family had to leave their roadside home, and it wasn't because of that tragic car accident, the one that took the life of his stepbrother, Ed. As we delve deeper into Clay's journey, we uncover the hidden truths and secrets that shaped his life. Leaving the roadside house. Well, we departed from that roadside house in the country in quite a hurry. I recall my ma engaging in fiery debates with my father about living far from the bustling world. Why do we have to be so far away from town? It's gonna have to be that way. Now, in retrospect, I wonder if my father, Jack Gregor, 
I imagined that isolating my mother was a scheme to keep her out of mischief with other men. Whether due to my mother's influence or some other obscure motive that changed my father's mind, I cannot confirm, but I can confirm that our next destination was moving to Cole Township, Pennsylvania. Cole Township. We're moving to Cole Township? Now, it embodied the quintessential coal mining enclave, a realm where clapboard row houses clustered together, each row holding four such houses, their modest backyards enclosed. How did we get so lucky? Now, to my eyes, it felt akin to residing in a cramped alley. Mom, this is our house? Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Get used to it. Okay. Hey! We've got a good thing here. Yeah. We got a sheltered coal stove in the cellar, you see? Uh-huh. We can use it for both cooking meals and for heat. Okay. In the winter, we'll use this galvanized tub to take baths. We can use the coal stove to heat it. I see. How'd we get this lucky? In the summertime, an outdoor hose served as our place to bathe. Our lavatory facilities were relegated to the small back porch exposed to the elements and people, anybody that happened to come by. Moreover, a porcelain night bucket was stationed at the top of the stairwell, precariously poised, used for nighttime nature's callings, mind you. Lord help the poor soul who would topple that bucket in the dead of the night. I was but a lad of six or seven as we settled in Cole Township, and while I possess no memory of attending school prior to our arrival, I distinctly recall finally beginning my scholastic journey there. Our school was a short two blocks from our residence, and I harbored a daily eagerness to walk that distance, I remember. My fourth grade year etched a notable triumph in my recollections, a spelling bee victory. Now. The word that secured my triumph was superintendent. S-U-P-E-R-I-N-T-E-N-D-E-N-T. Superintendent. (laughs) I can still hear Mr. Strauss proclaiming, Correct. Clayton, you're the winner. First story I wrote was in sixth grade. I'll never forget it, and it was awesome. We were given a week project to write a one-page, 200-word story about anything. It was an English lit or English grammar structuring uh, assignment. And I didn't write anything up until the night before. And I knew the deadline was there because she had said, okay, tomorrow morning, when you bring your writings in, we're going to have you read in front of the class. And I wrote a story, and I titled it The Hostile Insect. And it was great. It was about these black ants that had surrounded a farmer and driven him into a pond. And in the middle of the pond was a little island. And they kept him there and wouldn't let him off. And it was based on a true experience, though, where I worked on a farm as in the summertime, and we had burnt out anthills because the horses and people, you know, would step into them. 
I always wondered about how mad they were because we were burning them out. But after the thing was, when I read it to the class, they all laughed all the way through it. And the teacher said to me, this, where'd you get this from? It was sixth grade. And uh, I told her what it was from, and she said it was very unusual. And that I, I should look into writing or something along those lines. I wasn't interested in writing, but what I did like at the time was the, uh, that five minutes of fame, standing in front of the class. I was an invisible student prior to that. And uh, they really got a kick out of it. It was around that juncture that I began to discern that my intellectual faculties eclipsed those of, well, most of my peers. Now, another singular event had occurred that made my school days more enjoyable. See, a fire had consumed one of our elementary schools in the area, leading to the amalgamation of students from the scorched institution <laughs> with ours. The resulting overcrowding necessitated the partitioning of our school into two shifts, an early morning session and an afternoon one. I was in the afternoon session, so with nothing to do at home, I used to go into school early and read the Britannica encyclopedia that was in the library. Now, before internet, that's where you got most of your information, that and books. And that caught the attention of Mr. Mumley, our history teacher. Have a seat, Clayton. See this? Yes. It's a globe. I see it. Clayton, the world's mighty big out there. Mm. You should make plans to someday get out and try to see it. Mm. Okay. Mr. Mumley, at every available instance, would engage in enlightening conversations with me when I came in early to school. He was imparting his insights into the annals of the world, science, literature, and history. Cool bootleggers. Huh? What's our business? What do we do? Us? That's easy. Oh. Bootleggers. Cold bootleggers. It's a cold to cash business. No middleman. Uh -huh. No union dues. It's how we make do. Mm. You got that, Clay? Now, my family was part of a little-known group of coal miners called bootleggers. Now, bootleggers were families that banded together to mine coal on their own instead of working for the large union-run mines. Bootleggers were a very curious bunch. They could have made more money and had job security by working in the larger mines, but it just wasn't in them. Rebels, they had to be on their own. No. Our bootlegging clan consisted of my father, his brother, my uncle, and his two grown sons. Most of the wives and daughters worked in the local garment factories seamstresses. There wasn't a single thought of a future for any of us. Our work was nothing more than a way to make enough money to pay for food and a place to stay. The only recreation available to bootleggers and their families was sitting on our porches on the weekends and drinking beer and homemade wine, which they called Dago Red. There were no dreams. There was no retirement. See, miners would work as long as they were able to. This is interesting. And then, just hope for the best. 
sissy, pour me another Dago Red. Work to live. See, when those retirees became in need of constant care, they would just kind of become a part of the household furniture until they died. Uh, What do I mean? Well, there was no such thing as going to hospitals or hospices for these people. These were the bootleggers. It became routine that when you visited someone's house, you might see an old man wrapped up in a blanket just laying on a couch and sitting on a chair waiting for the end to come. True. Coal bootleggers ran their mines on a cash basis, and they never paid taxes. Hence, they would never become eligible for Social Security benefits. They literally worked to live. Nothing more. Bent cans. Like most bootleggers, we had a limited menu, and we just sort of ate to live. See that repeated pattern here. My father would drive up to Milton, Pennsylvania once a month to a Chef Boyardee plant and buy bent cans for a dollar a case. I must have eaten several thousand meals right out of those cans. (laughs) I used to take the cans and place them on the car exhaust and warm them up. That's how I warmed up my meals. Now, most uh, bootleggers did not have a formal education and they had even less technical knowledge of the earth they were mining. Clay's Coal Education. Boy, listen. Coal runs in seams under the ground. These seams are called veins. And each vein is numbered on the map here. So, Clay, these seams of coal are like ribbons flowing underground, sometimes running very close to the top and sometimes going very deep. Deep So once we discover a vein, all we miners have to do is follow it. That's right. And listen. It's impossible to tell how thick a coal vein is. Sometimes a vein can be 20 feet thick, and other times the vein can pinch out. Right. You know what pinch out means? Boy? No. It means no coal, or at least too narrow to mine. It ain't worth mining no more. Got it. Just find a spot and dig. Most of the mining, therefore, was nothing more than a blind venture. It was impossible to know how a vein would turn out. Sometimes the vein bore right into another old mine that was started from the other direction years ago. Or a break into a mine that was flooded and abandoned. That was a real danger. No one kept maps or data at that time. And back then, living in coal country was a gamble. (laughs) Just find a spot and dig. Boy, you gotta follow the vein of coal. If we're lucky, our mine won't run out. And our little independent mine we found will be all we need for years. Heck, some families around here have mined the same vein for generations. If we pinch out... No coal. No money. No food. Out of luck. (laughs) Going off the rails. So, getting the coal out had become a very simplified procedure. Now, here's what I mean. One or two men would go down into the mine, and one would stay on top and operate a winch to pull the people and the coal up. 
The person in the mine would simply fill up a large steel drum attached to a cable. Now the cable was operated by pulleys that were hooked up to a large wooden tripod that we called a tipple. tipple. Once the steel drum reached the top, it was tipped into a truck stationed underneath. A cable was connected to a, a drum which had to be welded onto the rear axle of some aging automobile we used. To operate the system, the person working on the top of the setup would start the car and engage the car in gear and use its power to pull the load up out of the mine, whether it be coal or people. The cable was always marked with a white grease line to indicate when it was time to apply the brake so as to not let that drum go slamming into the bottom of the coal mine. The bootleggers used wooden or steel rails for the container to slide on. Now sometimes the container stayed right on the rails. Sometimes it didn't. Down in the mine. The mine shaft was very narrow. When I first started going down, I always felt afraid when I'd hear that big barrel come barreling, rattling back down to the bottom of the mine. But if the operator didn't stop it in time and see that white loose paint line, it would crush me, possibly hurt me or kill me. Oh, no. After all, there were no safety features for the bootleg miners, no communications, and the signal to pull the drum up was to jerk on a line that was attached to a little bell. The only lights we had were carbide lights attached to our hats. Now, we would mix carbide powder with water and a small lantern that was attached to the front of our hats, and the fumes from that mixture would give off gas that was flammable. The carbide would start to spurt and sputter, and we held matches to the fumes, and we had light. <laughs> Sometimes candles were used, but rarely. Now, water. When you're in a mine, water also was a huge problem down there, as it was always seeping in from the walls or the ceiling, and if it rained on the surface, water would run down into the mine itself. The water did have its upside, though. What it did do that was good is it kept the dust down in that mine to a minimum. daily routine. Oh boy, here we go again. Our routine was the same every day. Day after day, go down into the mine, put the coal into the container. Once the bootleggers met their quota for the day, they would leave. My father shared his mine with two other families, so their goal was to bring up at least 12 tons of coal each day. That translated into two truckloads per day. Once they met their quota, they would split the pay three ways. Now they would start in the mines around 5 a.m. and they'd try to be out by noon. Boy, the reason we always started early is not to use up our energy and strength doing anything else. We'll need every ounce just to get through the day. After we got the coal to the surface, we would take the coal that was in the truck to a coal refining plant and we'd get paid. The amount that we got paid depended on the quality of the coal and how much other slag and rock was mixed in. That's a good batch, boy. No more Mr. Mumley. One day, after my ninth birthday, 
my mother asked me, Why do you go into school early? Every day. Well, they have these great books of adventure in the encyclopedias. I like those ones. And Mr. Mumley's there too. Now after that conversation, a few days later, my father came to me and told me, Boy, from now on, you will be going to the mine every morning with me. No more school. No more of this Mr. Mumley guy. Needs versus wants. I think that's when I began to understand that what was expected of me as a member of the family. I was not to focus on what I liked to do, but rather do what the family wanted me to do. See, I was born as a part of this working unit, coal bootleggers, and I had to do as the unit dictated. That's also when I began to notice that my father seldom called me by my name. I was always called boy, him, or you. I couldn't wait until someday, because someday I would transform into that person with the first name. So what's our takeaway today? What did we learn? What did, uh, what did Clay learn? What's the learning curve here for him? In today's episode, we heard about a young Clay Gregor, seven to nine years old, grappling with the confusion the surrounding everyday life that he encountered. Despite moving to a home with basic amenities, very basic amenities, Clay discovers a passion for school and he excels academically and he's particularly inspired by his teacher, Mr. Mumley. However, the demands of his family's coal mine, family of coal bootleggers, forces him to sacrifice consistent attendance at school, emphasizing the priority of survival for the family over learning and education in his life. Now, Clay realizes that his focus should align with his family's needs. In his mind, that's the right thing to do, rather than his own personal preferences. Now, amidst the perpetual chaos in his surroundings, Clay attempts to make sense of these conflicting priorities and navigate the challenges that they present. Now, this story is just a foundation of an extraordinary man, in my opinion, living an extraordinary life. And this is just the foundation, the beginning, in which we intend to cover here on the podcast, maybe down the road a few more episodes. What do you think? Should young Clay have had the choice to go to school? Or do you think it was more important for him to work in the family's coal mine as a coal bootlegger? For today, I hope you liked our second installment of The Art of Being Clay. This is Clay Greger. So come on back next time. For now, for Life's Learning Curve, I'm Paul Hart. Subscribe to Life's Learning Curve at lifeslearningcurve.org and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser. Season 5, Episode 82 of Life's Learning Curve, Cold Bootleggers, The Art of Being Clay was put together by Sebastian T. Dog and Paul Hart. Find us just about everywhere podcasts are heard. 
our website, lifeslearningcurve.org. While you're there, please subscribe. We'd love to have you aboard. This episode has imaginative voice recreations. To protect the privacy of others, some names have been changed and characters conflated. Season 5, Episode 82 of Life's Learning Curve, Cold Bootleggers, The Art of Being Clay. For more lifelong stories and realer-than-real experiences, catch us next time right here on Life's Learning Curve. We're clear.